You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Good morning, Real Life. I feel like I'm supposed to Aerosmith this sermon today. If I, had, if, I was, if I was more confident I wouldn't kill Emmy, I would just kick this stand out there and pull it back. I don't need this. How is everybody doing this morning? Good. Um, let's see here. We're working through this sermon series called One Big Story, which pretty much describes what the series is trying to do. We're trying to walk through the one big story, the one big narrative that walks right along with our children uh, and their curriculum. Everybody should be able to have this one big conversation about one big story. We're all talking about the same things every single week. So uh, has anybody been able to utilize that? Has it been good? Any good conversations going on out there? Okay, good. Some yes will do for me. I'll take some yes. That's good. Um, so today we want to talk about uh, the crucifixion. So I was like, one of those sermons. Yeah, one of those sermons. But I want to start by going back to Genesis 1. You're like, oh, not again. Yes, again. But don't worry. I have a purpose for this. Um, so hang in there. Don't check out. Don't check out. It'll be worth it. At least I hope so. So hang with me, okay? Genesis 1, we, we hear this creation story. God takes chaos and he begins speaking order into chaos. The story tells us about these six days. Six days that God does his work. Six days where God speaks order into chaos. He separates light from darkness. He separates land from water. He separates uh, the waters above from the waters below. Excuse me, I got those out of order. He, he fills those spaces that he's separated. Six days he does this work. At the end of the sixth day, it culminates with his creation of man and woman, male and female, humankind. He makes human. At the end of every one of these creations... Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. Actually, not on day two, but that's a minor detail. You can go back and check it yourself. <laughs> At the end of every one of these days and twice on day three, except day two, God says it is good. It's good. Like he makes something and he's just like, oh, that's so good. Like, and then he makes something else. He's like, oh, that's so good. It's like me. If you ever watch me work on my own, <laughs> there's nobody else around. I'm like, oh, that's so good. That's so good. And God's just giddy as he makes creation. He gets all done. He makes man and woman. He makes humankind. And he says, oh, that is very good. And at the end of day six, God steps back and he says, it's done. It's finished. It's completed. There's nothing more that I could do. God knows when to stop. Um, I was listening to a teaching years ago. I listened to a whole group of teachings by a rabbi named Rabbi Foreman. Um, Orthodox Jewish teacher, not a believer in Jesus, but was teaching on the book of Genesis. He says all the greats, all the artists, all the great creators, the Michelangelos, the Da Vinci's, all, all these amazing greats, one thing they all had in common was they all knew when to stop. Who was it that made the great? Was it Michelangelo that did David, the sculpture, right? Do I have that correct? So Michelangelo crafts this and he knows like one more blow with the chisel and the hammer and he could ruin the masterpiece. One more, one more brush stroke on the great Mona Lisa, which I've been told by a art major is a horrible example because apparently the artist worked on that until the day they died and never stopped adding to it. But nevertheless, <laughs> go with me here. Even if death was their finest stroke. 
they knew when to stop. Because if you draw a mustache on Mona Lisa, you ruin it, right? Great artists know when to be done. God knew at the end of day six, there is nothing more I can do. Did you know, I, I didn't know this, did you know that cancer, the reason that cancer is so dangerous and, and why we can't stop it is because cancer never stops creating. Cancer is not stamped static. It is this never-ending dynamic thing, which is why we can never figure out how to get on top of it and cure it and because it just constantly keeps creating and to keep creating is destructive. God knows when he's done with creation, there's nothing more that could be done here. And then he looks at his humankind, his companions in this great project, and he says, just enjoy this rest with me. And on day seven, he does what? He Sabbaths, he rests, and he invites Adam and Eve. He says, just enjoy creation. I can't wait to see what we're going to do with this. It's not static, it's dynamic. I can't wait to see how we're going to order it, build things, reproduce, be fruitful and multiply. Beyond just human reproduction, there's this call, like join me, God says, in taking creation somewhere. I can't wait to see. But six days of creative work, a statement that it is completed, it is done, it is finished, and then this invitation to join him in this restful bliss this restful enjoyment of creation. By the way, as a PS, that, inv that invitation still extends to you and I today. I realize the world has changed. It is not the pure world of Genesis 1. It's broken. There's all kinds of things that are wrong with it. And yet there's still an invitation where God says, trust that its fundamental nature is goodness. Trust that through all of the chaos and all of the stuff that's broken in this world, trust that what God is doing with this story is something good. And just be okay with that. Here's why I go, here's why I go over that. It seems like the authors of the Gospels seem to keep wanting to tie us in multiple Gospels, if not even all four, keep wanting to tie us in the story of the crucifixion and the cross. They keep wanting to tie us back to the creation narrative. Here's what I mean when I say that. Imagine a week where Jesus enters Jerusalem to bring order to chaos. Spiritual corruption known as the Sadducees and this corrupt priesthood. We spent all of Lent walking through every single one of the days of Jesus' final week. We call it the week of passion. At the, every single one of these days, Jesus separates holiness, sacredness from commonness, holiness from profane. Every day he speaks order into chaos. Every day he has work that he does. And at the end of day six, Friday night, what is it that Jesus cries out? It is finished. Let's compare the two passages. Here's the passage out of one of the Gospels. Remind me of which one, Kevin? John. What a wonderful choice that I made this week that I had to be reminded of in all of my study. Ooh. I won't do that in second service. That was a special gift for you guys. John 19, later, knowing that everything had now been 
finished. And so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, and so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. There is this twice in that passage, there is this reference to the completion, to the finish. The word there is finished. Knowing that it had been finished, Jesus then finishes it and says, it is finished. It hearkens us back to the creation story. The first use of this word, finished. Genesis 2, look at this. Thus the heavens and the earth were, guess what the word is there? NIV got it, gets it wrong. ESV gets it right. Finished. That's important because it's going to use that word twice, just like John did in this passage. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all of their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. I find that interesting because on on the Friday night of the creation story, on Friday night of creation, God basically stepped back and said, it's finished. And then what does he do on day seven? He rests. On day six, on Friday night of the crucifixion story, Jesus cries out, it is finished. And what will he do on Saturday? Yeah, he'll rest. You say, well, he's dead. Yes. That's one way of talking about rest. There's this whole idea of God resting on the seventh day. It's almost like the gospel authors are intentionally trying to tie us back, and John definitely is doing it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we could all sit around and argue. John, it's without a doubt trying to tie us to the the creation story. We've talked about this before, but throughout John's entire gospel, he keeps drawing the parallels. There are seven miracles prior to Jesus' death in the gospel of John. He starts off by counting them, water into wine. This was the first miracle. Oh, thank you, John. (laughs) Then he heals the official son. This was the second miracle. Okay, one, two. And then John stops counting, which is a very Jewish way of going, count the miracles. So as you follow the miracles, the seventh miracle ends up landing on the raising of who? Lazarus. The great culmination where God created mankind. Jesus brings breath of life back into a man. It's paralleling creation. This this seventh miracle, meaning that the resurrection ends up being the first miracle of a new creation. There's a whole new creation. You're like, I don't really know about that. Okay, let's look at what John says about the resurrection story. Now Mary, this is probably not Mother Mary. This is probably, looking at the way that the scripture references go, this is probably one of the other Marys, whether it's Mary Magdalene or we can all argue about that. Probably not Mary, the mother of Jesus, the way that she talks to him later. But I'll let you wrestle with that. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize. Have you ever like unplugged 
the whole lullaby effect. Like I know that if you've grown up in the church, you've heard the story of the empty tune a thousand times. Have you ever unplugged and just read this as if you were reading it for the first time? Is this like, like what kind of moment is this? Like nobody's nodding. The first time anybody's risen from the dead on their own. Like not resuscitation, resurrection. Because Lazarus died again. I don't know if you knew that. Thank you. Somebody laughed at that. That was a joke. Lazarus died again. This is the first time we've witnessed resurrection. There's a difference between resuscitation and resurrection. Are you tracking with me? Like, what was this like? Mary turning around and seeing Jesus, but she doesn't realize it's Jesus, which nobody does, by the way. The disciples on the road to Emmaus don't realize it's Jesus. Nobody realizes it's Jesus. So I wonder if he like had a hood up or I don't know. That's another joke I'm going to come. Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the? Oh, come on. That, to quote another person's joke, the actual Greek there is wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Like the gardener of all the things that John could include. We have a woman in a garden with a gardener. What is this calling you back to? Creation, Genesis, without a doubt, one of the things that John's trying to do. There's a woman in a garden with a gardener. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, ah, it doesn't say that. Check your Bibles. Check any Greek New Testament you want. It doesn't say that. That's literally the translators wanting to just throw that in there, because it is not in a manuscript anywhere. Does not say he was speaking in Aramaic. Drives me crazy. It's, uh, it's just us trying to take the Jewishness out of the New Testament. Literally, it's not in there. Don't believe me? Go check it. Jump on your blue letter Bible. It ain't in there. Anyway, enough. She turned toward him and cried out, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's an intimate form of rabbi. She has this moment at the tomb, which John directly connects to the creation story. So whether all the gospel writers are doing it or just John, John at the very least is trying to pull us back to this parallel between Genesis and the crucifixion. So I want to I go with John. If that's what John's trying to do, I want to go with John there. And I want to take this, I want to take a moment just to contemplate this idea of God resting. It's a weird way to consider Saturday in the tomb, isn't it? I haven't heard too many sermons, I, I, I haven't heard any sermons on the idea that the tomb obviously lands on a Saturday, a Sabbath, and what is God doing on that Sabbath? In a very literal sense, God is resting. I was like, man, why? So I've been wrestling with that for the last couple weeks. What is it that we pull out of this idea of God resting? I'll give you one theory, and you guys can all talk about it and maybe preach a better sermon than me next week, but I wonder if this idea of God resting goes all the way back to Genesis. When God looked at all of our mistakes and all of our sin, as God looked forward in history, forward into the future, and saw all of like the whole compilation of human suffering and sin, and I wonder if, see, sometimes when we tell the story, I feel like every time we turn the page and we turn a corner, we almost imagine God going like, oh no, what am I going to do now? And he has to like come up with another, like Adam and Eve sin. And God's like, ah, not to take away God's emotion that, that we're told about, that he's angry, that he's disappointed, that he's frustrated, that he's, but I, 
That's a very Greek way. It's like Greek, that's more like Greek mythology than it is about Hebraic scripture. This idea that God's like, oh no, what am I gonna do? Like as we look at humanity, we talked about the redemption cycle a few weeks ago. Like is God like, ah, oh, golly, they didn't get it. What am I gonna, ah, oh, God. Or does God look at our journey and go, my love's bigger than that. And that's not to minimize your sin. That's not to minimize unbelievable tragedy without human his- within human history. War and Holocaust and like we've had some dark, dark chapters all throughout human history. Not to minimize that one little bit, but instead to say how much bigger is God's love than anything that we've ever experienced. I wonder if God's response to all of the chaos of human history has been just to rest. My love is bigger than that. My love is bigger than that. Yeah, but Jesus, you don't know, you don't understand. I wonder if part of the message of the cross is on Saturday, Jesus rested. Nobody else did. The disciples were panicky. Pilate couldn't sleep. I'm sure Mary was at home. I'm sure Mary didn't, Mother Mary didn't get much sleep that night. Tragedy, grief, despair. God rested. Give me everything you got, Jesus says. My love's bigger than that. My love is bigger than that. Here's this passage from Romans. I love this passage. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. This is a lousy beginning to a passage. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was even given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Paul says, death has always been a part of our story. This screwed up, broken world, whether we had a commandment, whether we had law, whether we had something to trespass or not, death, sin, has always been a part of the story. But the gift is not like the trespass. (laughs) that's an awesome verse but the gift is not like the trespass that should get an amen out of somebody the gift is not like the trespass for if the many died by the trespass of the one man how much more did God's grace how much more remember the Calvacho Mary we've talked about before how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ overflow to the many Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. This is a Jewish rabbi going, you can't take sin. Sin doesn't hold a candle to the love that God has for you. Come on now. Sin doesn't hold a candle to the love that God has for you. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Does anybody know what it's like to live with condemnation? Does anybody know what that's like? Three of you. Yes, this is the state we live in all the time, every single day. It's why we'll end this sermon like we end it every week by going to the Lord's table because you and I struggle with condemnation every single day. That condemnation comes from others. That condemnation comes from ourself. That condemnation, anybody know what I'm talking about? All right. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many sins 
and brought justification. Paul is like on this rabbinical roll, and I'm apparently not doing a very good job preaching on it, because he's like, there's this sin, and this sin brings this, but there was this gift. There was this sin, but there was this Jesus. There was Adam, and there was Christ. There is this, there is this thing. They don't, there's not like, ooh, like I'm, I think of fight night, and they got the two like guys on the, on the screen. It's not like that. It would be like, my son going up against Conor McGregor. I could be like, mm, mm. God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, that would be the cross, resulted in justification and life for all people. For justice through the disobedience of the one man. Do you feel like Paul's just kind of like repeating himself? Good, because he is. Just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Like I wonder if from the beginning of time, if God has just always looked at our sin and it's hurt him, it's pained him, he knew what it would cost him. I'm not trying to make light of the cross. But I wonder if God's response is, my love's got that. My love has that. Like I, I don't think G, like God was on the edge of his chair going, <laughs> I think he looked at all of the chaos of human history and went, I can cover that. I'll rest on Saturday. Because I know that Sunday's coming and I know I got this covered. I'll the, the work, has, the, the closest thing I can think about this, uh, remember Jonathan Smalley, those of you who've been with Real Life for a long time? He used to be one of our care group guys here. He used to play racquetball with Jonathan Smalley every Monday and Wednesday. And uh, I don't know if you know anything about Jonathan Smalley. If it's an odd sport, he's really good at it. And so I used to always play, and he kind of taught me how to play racquetball, and I kind of got better, and I got better, and I got better. And there, there were some of those days where I was just like, I was on it. And I was like, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm giving Jonathan a run for his money. And I think maybe he could sense that I kind of felt that way, and he would just do something that would just, like he would just, and it would hit me in the back of the head. I remember one day, he used to always tell me to stop stepping into his lane, if anybody, if anybody plays racquetball, like you got somebody behind you, they're going to hit this ball as hard as they can. And if you step in front of them into their lane, where is that ball going to go? Yeah, a couple times he did it. I think I still have a welt right back here from where he, he used to always tell me, quit stepping into my lane. One day I was feeling particularly good about myself and I stepped over there and you know where the ball went? Right between my legs. And I went, excuse me. <laughs> Like, I imagine the way that Jonathan Smalley felt about me playing racquetball. I wonder if that's kind of a metaphor, maybe, maybe a horrible one, for how God has always felt about the chaos of the world. I got this. I got this. I got this. Look at this quote from, we, we shared this for Easter. I had so many people write me an email. I thought, I'm going to throw it on the, 
the screen again and I'm going to put it in your notes so that you don't have to write me an email for it. We use this on Resurrection Day. The cross was not God's invention, it was ours. Just let that sink in. The cross was not God's invention. The cross was our invention. In all of our need for an eye for an eye, I have to wonder sometimes if God listened to us cry for blood and offered his own. If Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was not to sate God's wrath, but to show God's response to ours. Like, I wonder if God looked at everything that we had ever cook up and all the stuff we would ever struggle with and all the ways, and I wonder if God just said, I got this. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, my love's bigger than that. And I think about, it's, it's Mother's Day today. I think about the mom in the story. And she's such a wonderful example for us. Mother's Day is always tricky. It's hard to talk about moms on Mom's Day because there's always, it brings up all this other stuff for other people. Like there are moms that you want to celebrate and then there are people that have lost children or struggled with motherhood or never had the opportunity to be married. There's people that struggle with infertility and miscarriage. And what I love about this story is Mary kind of covers it all. She's got the grief. She's got the motherhood. She's got the despair. She's got the rage. And you know what she does on Sabbath? This floors me. You know what she does on Sabbath? What does she do? She rests. Not instead of despairing. Not she rests instead of grieving. She rests and she grieves. She rests and she laments. She rests and she's confused. She rests and she despairs. Do you hear me? It doesn't negate all those other things, but she also sits there and she, I'm amazed that she doesn't just go beat down the door of a tomb and go, I know it's Saturday. I'm anointing my boy. Floored by that. Nobody would blame her. I wouldn't. I wouldn't take a Saturday off. I would not blame her for one second, but she doesn't. She says, I'm going to trust in what God's put before me. I'm going to rest today. I bet that was the most unrestful rest, the most unrestful Sabbath she's ever had. And yet she rested. And because of that, do you know what she got to see? Not, not in the John passage, that was probably Mary, another Mary, but in the other gospels, she was in the group. You know what she got to see on Sunday morning? Her boy resurrected. I wonder, like, I don't know what you brought with you through the doors this morning. But I know that most of us bring all kinds of stuff. Sometimes it's buried underneath all kinds of other stuff. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we're wearing it on our sleeves. Sometimes we're denying it. Sometimes whatever. But we bring all kinds of sin, rebellion, questions, confusions, grief, struggle. Some of us bring victory. Some of us bring celebration. A lot of us don't. You bring it through the door. I don't know what you bring with you, but I wonder if on Mother's Day we can learn a lesson from the mother in this passage. Bring it. Bring it and lay it at the foot of the cross and say, God, I have no idea what you're doing with this. What I do know is you look at it and you go, I got that. Listen, I know some of you bring massive mistakes sin, betrayal into this room. 
the cross looks at it. Jesus looks at it from the vantage point of the cross. And he says, I got that. I got that. My, my love covers that. And I know that there are people going, even my, yeah, yep, even your stuff. The cross says, I got that. That's the good news. We, we are going we, we to go back to the Lord's table, and we're going to, obviously this morning especially, take the bread and the juice. Um, if you're new and visiting with us, uh, if I said we are going to go back to the table, that's incorrect. Our servers are going to go back to the table. We are going to spend time at the table when they pass it to us. Just hold on to the bread and the juice. If you're new, we have an open table. So if you want to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, especially today, your family, you just celebrate it with us. Just take the bread and the juice and hold on to it, and we'll take it here in just a moment. Here are some implications for this message. God has always invited humankind to trust in his love for his creation. From, the de from, the first de from Genesis 1 through today, May of 2018, God has always invited us to trust in his love for creation. That has never changed. The story's never been different. The story won't change for as long as Jesus tarries. God will always look at humankind and say, I love you more than that. I love you more than that. Just trust me. That trust leads to true Sabbath rest. Whether you're Jesus in a tomb or Mother Mary at home or Peter the denier or it doesn't matter who you are, if you can trust in how big God's love is, it will lead you to the ability to rest in the midst of everything you bring to the table. That's what leads to true Sabbath rest. Next implication. At just the right time in history, Galatians 4.4 4 says, when, at the fullness of time, or I, I always love to retranslate it, at just the right moment, God sent Jesus. Jesus came to show us the full extent of God's love. And I don't know exactly what God's perspective is, but according to Galatians, God looked at the history of humanity and said, right now, now is the perfect moment. Go show them how big my love is. At just the right time, Jesus came to show us the full extent of God's love. Next implication. God has always known how his love stacks up against our sin. God has always known how his love stacks up against our sin. Verdict, not a, not a match. It's not going to be, there will be no contest. God's love is so much greater than your sin. That's what the cross tells us. Last implication. Will you allow yourself, this is really the question. Every, every Sunday we come here, every Sunday we grab some bread, we grab some juice, we, do, we, we take part, we participate in what hopefully is an incredibly holy and sacred moment of remembering this truth. And I know that as weekly participants of this, this can get to a place where you, heaven forbid, we go through the motions in this moment. We just 
chew on the piece of bread, we throw the juice back, we kind of give a nod to it. Listen to me, whatever you brought through the doors this morning, will you allow yourself to find true Sabbath rest in the love that was displayed on the cross? But this, this was a hard sermon to preach because there's so much theology surrounding the cross. And I really wanted to preach that sermon, but we, we didn't. There's so much heady theology surrounding atonement theory. There's so many ideas. Here, but here's the one thing that we all said as we sat, as Aaron and I talked about this message, as we sat in Sermon Club two weeks ago. Here's the one thing we know. The cross is how much God loves you. I don't know about all the systematic theology, and we can do that in some other space. Here's what I do know about the bread you hold in your hand and the cup of juice you hold in the other. This is how much God loves you. We can, we can parse it out. This is how much God loves you. However you need to understand that, see it, read into it. This is how much God loves you. His love has got you covered. His love has got you. His love is reckless. It's reckless. I don't know how long we're going to sing that worship song around here, but I hope it's a really long time. This reckless love he has. Reckless. Anyway, don't, don't lose the gravitas of what we're about to do here. Let this hit you with the full weight of God's love. Little piece of bread. That night Jesus was was betrayed, ate supper with his disciples. That night that he began a very long and short journey to the cross, he took a piece of bread during a Passover meal. He broke it and he gave it to disciples. Disciples he loved with all of his heart. He had spent every waking moment for the last three years with them. He looked them in the eyeballs. He said, take and eat. This is my body. This is how much I love you. Whenever you do this, do not forget my love. Let's remember Jesus. And then later in that meal, Jesus took a cup. He gave it to all those disciples that he loved very dearly. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Whenever you do this, don't forget. Let's remember Jesus. Father God, I think of all all of the ways and the times that I personally have just taken your love for granted. Um, I, and I, I, I hope that your love is such a staple of our walk that it is something that is so common that it can become commonplace. I would pray against that. But I hope that our remembrance of how much you love us is that present daily in our walk with you. Would you just help us to make sure that every single day we dust that off, every single day we, re, we revive that, that perspective, that outlook on just how big your love is. Jesus, for all those people that are here today that brought with them pretty hefty laundry lists, um, stuff they still carry around, things that still whispers, as we talked about weeks ago, whispers that still creep up and start whispering in our ear, would you let your love just crush those, drown those, 
cast those into the sea as far away as you can. Would you remind us how big, how deep, how reckless your love is? Would you remind us of how far you would go to come after us? God, we love you. It's in Jesus' resurrected, crucified name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.